This is Why Libertarian, the show dedicated to telling the stories of libertarians new and old, promoting libertarian values, and fighting against authoritarians, statists, feds, and anyone else who would like to steal your liberty and freedom. I am Matthew Strzok, and I would like to thank you for tuning in to this episode. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Matthew Struck with Why Libertarian. Uh, we got another episode with a great libertarian here who is going to be sharing their story as to their background and why they're a libertarian. Um, Nick Lamparelli is joining us from, are you in Boston today, Nick? No, I moved to Naples, Florida. Oh, wow. Fantastic. So you traded in winter basically is what you did. I traded a bad winter for a bad summer. Yeah. And uh, given that it's early September, I'm now thinking, oh, I'm not sure if that was a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I w- my next question was going to be, I have a bunch of um, actually uh, professional contacts that are kind of like in the panhandle. Um, yeah. How did you guys manage with Sally that just rolled through? Uh, so I've been very fortunate so far uh, this hurricane season. All three that have approached the F- Florida coastline have basically tiptoed around us. Uh, Sally was the only one that we actually felt. So it got a little windy, mm-hmm. nothing significant, but man, it poured. Oh yeah. Like the, the storm blew up right off the coast where we are. And it went from, you know, just a little bit of drizzle to all day Sunday, torrential rain. I think we got 12 inches in 24 hours. So, um, th- that's the extent. So I feel very fortunate because I see what everybody else is going through. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, we talked about a little bit of the, the wildfire situation in my last mm-hmm. one that we did with Sean Osborne out in California. So it's like, uh, this is, you know, a reoccurring thing and, you know, not to, um, not to bore anyone who'd be watching or, or anything like that. But, uh, Nick and I know each other through basically the insurance and risk management industry. So this is something that we do on a day-to-day basis as far as our conversation, but I promise you, we, we won't afflict you with but that today. <laughs> I think, I, but I think, I think this, there's a connected dotted line to um, climate change and things like that. Like, so yes. why libertarian? Like um, my, my libertarian stances affect Um, how I behave, but it also affects like how, like what I think the potential solutions are. So, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, but like whether you believe, like whether you're a vehement believer, like climate change is this thing. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I still think the libertarian view on how to solve that is superior. Yeah. We'll get into details, I'm sure, but I, I think there are parallels there. Yeah, no, we could totally dig into it. I, you know, a lot of um, our back and forth, just kind of like in chat leading up to this, really focused on, and and you could correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but a lot of it really focused on personal agency, right? Just the idea yeah. of you are the master of your own destiny in a way, um, and that you know there there needs to be a results based um, element to just life. Right, uh, you know, regardless of whether you're talking about politics or not, uh, am I ca- characterizing that perspective well? Completely. Like, okay, if you, to me, I find it illogical. If you believe in free will, then why? If there's free will, so if there's a God, mm-hmm. um, if there's a spiritual being that is giving us free will, um, why should that free will be contained by a human form God, like a government or something like that. Like I, 
it, it seems inconceivable to me that those two things can so can sort of coexist. So yeah. I do, I believe in free will. I believe in human agency that yeah. the, the individual has uh, an incredible amount of deep resources um, that they can lean on. And that sort of informs uh, or kind of guides me in terms of the rest of my philosophical approach, because I just, I don't understand, like if that part breaks down, then everything I believe breaks down. So I had to believe or really feel confident in that piece of it. And so I spent most of my adult life when examining and debating and re-examining my own personal philosophies, like, is that true? Like, do we have free will? Do we have agency? Are there circumstances where that can be taken away or minimized or whatever? And it kept circling back to, no, like we have it. You can't take it away. And yeah. so we should be structuring society and culture to allow that to flourish. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a, a recurring theme, I think, that comes up with um, most conversations about libertarianism really centers on um, this element of almost cynicism that exists in the, the, the part of the people that believe in more government involvement, right? Yeah. This idea that the government, regardless, you know, put, put whatever imagery you want on it, right? Um, the, the, the nanny state, you know, the government's your parent or whatever. Um, but this cynicism that, you know, left to our own devices, we would all devolve into this just, you know, chaotic, anarchic mess. And what's ironic is, and, and I would love to hear your opinion on this, but with everything that's happening, whether it be the riots in Portland or, or in other places throughout the country, um, the, the ethnic and, and uh, racial equality issues that we have going on right now, even down to the COVID response, um, it, it really goes to show you that government's been involved the whole time, right? It hasn't fixed the problem. And a lot of us would make the argument that it's basically made it worse, right? Or maybe even been the source yeah. of the problem. Yeah. 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 I, I, I completely believe that. Um, it, there, there isn't much that, you know, so, so let, let me back up a little bit. My gro I'm, I'm the, I'm the fourth son of five to an immigrant to immigrant parents. I'm the wow. first one in my family born here. Um, I would say we, I grew up in a very, I wouldn't call it progressive, but a very uh, liberal background. Um, you know, my, my father was a union guy. He truly believed in the social safety net. He taught his kids to believe in that. Yeah. Um, the, my first chance to vote, I voted for Bill Clinton. I voted for Bill Clinton twice. I voted for Ted Kennedy. I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up blue. Yeah. Yep. So what, what happened? I lived a life and I just saw like, you know, I, it just, I saw the disconnect. I saw the, you know, why do things work this way? And, you know, Hey, when, when you, when government gets involved in something and it breaks down, why is the solution always more money or more government? I don't understand that. Like, no, no, no one else operates that way, but for some reason, it's just sort of accepted that, um, you know, we'll just throw more money at it. And, you know, having, having lived a life and having been in business or whatever, it's like that never solves the problem. It always makes it worse, you know, especially introducing the money piece. Of it. I think that's the most corrupting aspect of it. It's, I think the same people that want the government to come in and solve the problem and want the big budget for that. They're, they don't understand the trade-off that comes with that. 
with gigantic budgets, you're inviting corruption. Yes. There's a big pool of money there to go after, yeah. right? So it gets uh, seemly, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how all of that works. And so, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a, just a huge proponent and fan of things that work right, you know, that are like well-designed and work and work well. And just money is not always the issue. And I, I guess it'll, it just comes back to we have human agency over this. And so when it comes, like take education, for instance, you can't give someone an education. They have to, they have to take it. They have to want it. You can't give someone health. Like honestly, you can't give someone health. Like you can't make a 400 pound person, 150 pounds. They have to do that themselves. And so why would any other sort of human flourishing, um, be be designed in such a way where someone could give it to you yeah it nothing nothing like literally nothing works that way in every case it's you have you there i believe that there is a social contract right but i think a contract goes both ways and maybe the beginning of that social contract is i have human agency i'm an individual i have a responsibility to people around me to not be a slob to you yeah. know to to not to not fall prey to not do drugs right you know to to be an upstanding citizen to respect other people and not harm them i think that's our responsibility yeah you know and i think well, everything else everything else sort of like extends from that and and the the counterpart to that is that because you have freedom because you have personal agency and the ability to kind of write your own script if you make a, a misstep, right, you have to suffer the, the consequences of that decision. But I, I think a lot of folks will try and paint that as like the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like how, how many people, what's really strange is people that are um, really pro, you know, centralized government or, or pro-government overreach, okay? And then all of a sudden they're sending and posting videos on social media about how like, you know, you have to fail like all these times in order to be successful and you have to push through and all this other stuff. And you're like, your political leanings do not align with what you're putting out there in terms all of like time. this, you know, inspirational yeah. stuff. I love the fact that you brought up, um, this idea that you can't like force change or force like prosperity on someone. And you see this happen time and time again, right? One of the things I was thinking about earlier today in preparation for this was the idea of, you know, legalization of, you know, recreational drugs. Okay. And the question everyone has is, well, what's just, what's going to stop people from, becoming like just druggies hanging out all over the place and just ruining their lives. And the answer is that, well, you have to make a decision whether you are or aren't going to do that. No one forces that stuff into your body. And more importantly, once you make that mistake, if you consider it a mistake, no one forces you to stop, right? So someone who ends up having a habit, they end up, if they end up stopping and surviving that, they do it of their own volition. Like no matter how many times you arrest them, no matter time, how many times you throw them like in a rehab program or something like that, ultimately they have to make the decision to change. Yeah. Um, and, and, and doesn't and, it make it, doesn't it make it make them better? Like, don't they become, you see it time and again, where someone does overcome something like that. And they're the gift that they give is their ability to then relay 
you know, the stories of this is what I went through. This is how I got through it. You know, don't do what I did. It's, you know, you, why, why just, don't they, here's here's a question and it's kind of out of left field. Why don't they put an escalator to the top of Everest? Right? Like that's that's the thought, right? Like why why or or why don't they just put an escalator in like two thirds of the way, right? So that you get the attainment of like the last third, okay? But a lot of people, the way that they view things in that idea, you know, in that in that vein of like what what government can do to kind of like make your life better or easier or, or create a safety net, right? It's no longer just a safety net. Now it's literally like something that like pushes you or pulls you in a direction. But that, that, that's something that I've thought about many times. It's like, yeah, all these great feats, like why did they not just, uh, when, when, um, when, uh, Bannister ran the, the sub four minute mile, right? Like mm-hmm. why didn't they just like, you know, assume that he could run the first three laps in three minutes and then have him run one lap right? He had to do the whole thing. He had to do the whole thing. And he had to run like thousands, 10,000 miles in order to finally run one that was sub four minutes. And what's crazy is after he did it, like three or four people broke it within the months right after that. Yeah. Yeah. It it was, it became a mental thing. Yeah. 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 And, and to your point, humans are capable of amazing things. And, and, but now you gave me a quote that I thought was absolutely fantastic. I've, I've, I've probably seen this and just not even um, kind of noticed it until now, but um, the, the Charlie Munger quote, right? Um, show me the incentives and I'll show you, uh, you know, what the outcomes are. Yep. And if you end up rewarding mediocrity, you end up getting a whole lot of just that mediocrity, right? And, and I think we're seeing a lot of that now. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to make a political statement about like, the riots and things like that. I think sure. that's that. I think we can sort of separate that. Yep. But take take those people that are in Portland, right, and are getting arrested. You know, so right. so whether you believe this is police initiated or person initiated, these people are getting arrested and they're getting let go mm-hmm. immediately. It's just yep. a revolving door. And yep. guess what happens? They get arrested again. Yep. And guess what happens? They get arrested again. Like that's the incentive. Like there, you, there's no incentive to stop them from, from behaving that way. And we're losing sight of those things. And so I sort of, I, I hate to make the analogy and sort of say like, you know, um, you know, the, when you raise a child, I don't want to equate adults with children, sure. but it's, it's a metaphor, right? So, or analogy. Mm-hmm. So if you, if your children ask for things and you give that, give, your children things, what's going to happen? They're going to ask for more things. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, and and, and is, is it painful to say no? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's what parenting is all about. Like it's, you gotta, you have to, there's no way around it. You have to do those hard things. So if you want health, you have to do things that make you healthy. Like you have to want to do those. Yeah. If you want wealth, you have to do certain things. And I don't, I don't know at one point in my life that I began to sort of drift in that direction, but into the libertarian direction, but it's, it, to me, it just seemed completely obvious just from my own personal productivity, my own personal progression through life that I was my worst own enemy. Like I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't blame other people because I didn't study or I didn't like pass this exam or I didn't, you know, um, 
I, I didn't do the things that were necessary. And I recognize that. Like, it's like, yeah. if I could just do this, or if I could just behave in this way, like, you know, put me in a, in a um, corporate environment, you know, I, I struggle with, you know, keeping my opinions to myself or <laughs> saying things in a, in a, in a political way. And that has harmed my career. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there's, there's, literally nothing in my career where I could just like sort of point the finger and blame someone else. I always, I try to turn inwards. So wherever I haven't been, you know, are Nick, are you a billionaire? No. Well, why not? I don't know. There's some, there's something inside of me that's preventing me from, from reaching that or doing that or having that success. And so um, even if I'm wrong, right. Mm-hmm. I still think that is like the healthiest approach to how individuals should should sort of map out their lives. Like, yeah. uh, you know, but but I feel like it's our the incentives things. I feel as though our political systems have given a lot of incentive mm-hmm. for victimhood. Yeah. Uh, it, as a matter of fact, I would even say the uh, incentives greatly exceed the opposite. Mm-hmm. So you get more status points in society if you are a victim and so i see people like desperately seeking that out i mean just in the past week i've read two stories of white people who have tried to pass off as black people why why would they do that you know there's an incentive there for them to do that they there's there's a um their status points that they know they can get Mm -hmm. by trying to do that that they can't get and so that is really uh perverted Mm-hmm. right yeah um to seek to seek victimhood to seek weakness and to use weakness as a badge yeah. as like you know i am um you know i am being held back by the man or whatever and thinking that's like an honorable thing when it i will i will i will guarantee you i can uh, if you and i like sat down and had like a deep life coaching session with someone who is like one of these victims i will guarantee you, if we tore down their history mm-hmm. we could find a million examples where they could have done one thing that would have made them more productive and right. they chose an easier route yeah to go and i saw that all the time so it, it might have been college or whatever but i remember one time um in um i was a uh, biology major in college, there were two Korean students mm-hmm. in my class. Um, not only was the material hot, I, re- I remember taking a biochemistry class, but material, incredibly difficult, really mm-hmm. hard stuff. They spoke no English. They got an A. Yeah. Not, so not only did they have to learn the material, they had to freaking translate it. Right. Okay. So like, what's my excuse? Yeah. Yeah. It, if if I didn't get an A, shame on me. Look how freaking hard they're working. And I should at least be able, if I have privilege, I should at least be able to match their effort. And so I see what they did. And I'm like, there's nothing that they did that anyone else couldn't have done. So this, you know, falling on the victimhood sword, this rings really empty to me because I think of that story. I, I made a list preparing for this. There's a movie called, there's a movie called Door to Door mm-hmm. with William, William Macy. It's a, it's a true story. Um, and it's about, I don't know if he had a, um, a mental or physical condition, but he was, he, be, he was known at one point as like the world's greatest salesperson. Right. Right. And he I went think, door to door. 
I think I saw somewhere, was it cerebral palsy or something like that? that something like that. Yeah. Palsy, I don't, right? I don't remember what the ailment was, Yeah. but here's this guy who has this ailment and he became like very elite at salesmanship mm. and created a very, very good financial life for himself. And it's like, Oh, what's my excuse? Yeah. Like if he can do it, like, honestly, guy with cerebral palsy, becomes a great salesperson knocking door to door selling stuff in a digital age honestly if he can do that what's preventing anyone else from doing anything yeah, On, yeah. effort like it, it really boils down to that it, it and you know so that was one um i think a lot a lot of people look at a story like that and they say well yeah but wouldn't it have been nice if he didn't have to struggle as much like obviously he had to struggle in order to be successful despite his circumstances, right? And they say, well, you know, this is the most prosperous country in, in probably the history of mankind, right? Why can't we afford the, the, the assets or the resources so that his struggle wouldn't have been so hard? And I think the answer is, and it does seem a little cold, but you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, I mean, the truth is the truth. If he didn't have to struggle, would he have gotten to the same place, right? Would he have been as great if, uh, the the something was just handed to him, or even if he just no. had a, a a little bit more of a head start, um, we actually kind of suffer from. I would love to hear your opinion on this. I have this feeling that we we are a victim of our own success, or rather, we're a victim Completely. of prior generation success. Yeah. yeah, right. Things are so easy in America that we have areas where where there's difficulty, like there's food deserts in areas in the United States, okay? But for the most part, the overwhelming majority of us do not have food insecurity, right? Whether we're um, paying for our own grocery bill or we have WIC or food stamps or something like that, there are other countries like India where literally there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that are uh, almost- in Malnourished. Yeah, yeah, they're malnourished to the point where, you know, they, they can't find food, right? Um, but, you know, look at that in so many different aspects of American life. And you're like, you know, you've hit, I think Gary Vaynerchuk says it, you, you've hit the genetic and the um, sociocultural jackpot if you are born or lucky to immigrate to the United States, right? Because there are a bunch of other countries where someone could make the argument, it's better to do this here, it's better to do that there. But, you know, this country was founded on the idea of opportunity and improvement um, and, and it gets abused sometimes with this phrase, American exceptionalism. Well, American exceptionalism is not realized if everything is just handed to you or if you're given a head start in all of these things, right? Um, American exceptionalism is that idea that you'll do something that's crazy that no one else has ever tried before in a new way and find a new way to, to do something. And you know what? 90 times, 99 times out of 100, you'll fail, right? usually catastrophically okay but yeah. that one time you find something exceptional that's american exceptionalism right um we've gotten away from that now it's like true to that quote that munger quote right like we almost want everyone to be mediocre you know like i i, I think you know you're, you're you're seeing that in real time right it i was i can't say it better than that i, yeah. I don't even <laughs> it's and and you know as as a parent of um a 21 year old in college, but now doing it again with a four year old and a two year old. Wow. I good think, good think, for you. <laughs> so, but I, I can see, I can see, you, you know, I'm financially better off now mm -hmm. and it shows. Yeah. Right. 
um, my, my, my two little ones are much more spoiled. And I'm worried about the type of children I'm creating, mm, right? Yeah. Because it gets to what your point, right? Um, head starts and things like that. Mm-hmm. If I give them what they want all the time, that's not good. I think everyone would recognize that. And so there is a line where it's just like, you need to, they, they need to work for mm-hmm. it at some point. Like it, there's gotta be an effort to say, I'm going to, you know, they need to uh, recognize if I give this effort, I'll get this reward versus I just get the reward. That's right. a bad incentive to really set. And I think our culture is in the latter camp, the, the one that you describe. I think we, we want to give everyone a head start. We want to give, you know, the, the uh, Everest thing, we'll, 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 get, we'll put you on a helicopter or an escalator and get you three quarters of the way up. Yeah. And it's empty. Mm-hmm. And it does not teach you what needs to be taught. And um, all, it, all it does is that in the next, the next struggle, you're not going to want to put the effort in. You're going to need someone to give you that head start again. And, you know, I think we're seeing that now. So, you know, there's, I think the participation trophy mm-hmm. generation is now where we see a lot of this stuff where it's just like, gimme, 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 gimme. Like it, it, how could you not have seen that by giving kids trophies for failing that they would expect trophies for failing all the way through their life. Like how could you not expect that? Well, also the flip side of that too. um, A a lot of studies have shown that kids that get trophies for uh, substandard performance, like just attendance trophies or participation trophies. um, There's a higher incidence rate of depression and other types of psychological issues that stem from that. They know it because they know it inside. It's, it's, it's incongruous. Yeah. With their with the with the human agency, the spirit, the individualistic spirit that we talked about, that we each have. There's a fire. When we're born, there's a fire born within us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'll I'll think of it as a spiritual fire, but that fire, that flame needs to be enhanced. And so if you're not if you don't feed it, it will die. It will right. it will you will snuff it out. And you can't it's so difficult to light it back up. Yeah. Right? So yeah, I it's um, I can see that, mm-hmm. you know, because I've seen it in other parts of my life as well, you know, where um, the struggle wore me down and I was ill prepared for it, you know, and, and, and I started to fall into victimhood. And, um, you know, and that's happened recently as well, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it had, you know, it was a, like a life coach that worked with me that I realized that, no, it's me. Yeah. It's me. I, I have, I have some control over it. And so, you know, um, I, I really believe in the, you know, Stephen Covey, the seven habits um, of highly effective people, mm-hmm. when he says that for every action that occurs to you, there is a moment in time, however small, however big, and you get to decide what your reaction is mm-hmm. to that. And um, I, would, I would hate to live in a society that believes that that is not the case, that you don't have a decision to make, yep. you know, and, and it's, it's as simple as if someone says something very insulting to you, do you punch them? Right. And if you think you have the right to punch them, just ask yourself the question, um, do you have the choice to not punch them? 
Because if you do, now you have agency. You've just admitted it. So you right. didn't have to punch them. Yeah. And so um, we have that responsibility, I think. I think as human beings, our, the why the libertarian philosophy works is because I think it starts with respect. Yeah. Respect for yourself. You have to start with yourself. You have to have respect that you have that agency. You, you have the ability. You have free will. And then that respect has to extend to others, yeah. you know, and it, I think that can, that can drive an entire political philosophy, which it does for me yeah. of, you know, I don't think uh, burning down other people's properties is okay. Right. And guess what? I do believe they have a right to physically stop you from doing that because mm-hmm. you have no right to do that to them. Yeah. And um, I, I think, I think that, for for a world with seven or eight billion people, I think the libertarian philosophy is the only one that scales. Yeah. I think all other philosophies fall apart because you can't manage a heterogeneous world of eight billion people with different religions and cultures and thoughts. Like you can't do it unless you start with libertarian foundations. It's the only way. Yeah, and I, I think <clears throat> you're you're starting to see uh, a lot of the folks that ascribe more to like this intersectional type of perspective. You, they're already starting to see the breakdown of this because there there's limited there's literally an infinite number like every single individual, and I think you made this point in 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 your writings. Like every single one of us is is so individualistic, right? We can yeah. be ninety nine percent like someone else. But that one percent is what makes you completely different than everyone else. It's like an interesting kind of like dichotomy, I, right? I hate I hate getting grouped with others, and mm-hmm. you can you can chalk it up to privilege or whatever. But mm-hmm. I I have um, both my parents are Italian. I have a Mediterranean background. I have my DNA is closer towards people in the Middle East and mm-hmm. Africa mm-hmm. than people from England and Germany, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So when you group me as a block, as like Western white male, yeah. like, first of all, I don't get insulted, but I just think, I just think it's silly. I just think like, you know, it's just a silly to put me in that block, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but I actually, I'm closer to other people. Yeah. And so you can segment that further. Um, I, I happen to work in an industry where I do a lot of segmentation. So I think about that a lot. Um, I like to take big blocks and break them down into, into little blocks. And let's just assume that like this, uh, this intersectionality movement, let's just assume they're, they're mostly correct. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't scale. Yeah. It still doesn't, well, still doesn't scale. Cause you can't, you can't make political decisions based off of like um, arbitrary elements. Like, yeah you know, uh, one person's skin color is darker than another. Therefore, we're going to give them, we're going to treat them a certain way versus it, it, it completely breaks down. You can't run. If the, what I like about libertarianism is that it, and what I like about like free market economics is that it allows human beings to be natural and not have to like overly process, you know, how are we going to do this? It's, it's, you know, um, it's organic. I, I treat my, myself right and I treat you with respect now if I'm treating you with respect and you disrespect me I'm I have now the right to disrespect you as well but like if we just kind of operated in that way like 
people, it, it all sort of fits in. The pieces of the puzzle fit in. We become a more ethical society. And I, and I would venture to say um, the world has been a very violent place. Mm-hmm. Violent and poor. Yeah. All the way up to the 18th century. And then something magical happened yeah. in the 18th century. And I would say, getting back to American exceptionalism, I think being the first democracy, being the first peoples that decided that um, individuals had these God-given rights, right? And how that spread throughout the world, I will, I will venture to say that the wealth and the flourishing of the world is tied to that moment. That yeah. was the key that kind of unlocked the secret because before that, and in, in other parts of the world where they don't do this, life is life was and is miserable. Right. Yeah. No. That that um and, and that kind of comes back to also part of our earlier conversation. The there was a a, a spontaneity to how that came onto the scene. Right. Um, it was born out of certain levels of defiance of centralized planning and centralized kind of control of what was perceived as the individual's life and the right of the individual to choose their own path, right? Um, And it it flew in the face of, um, you know, literally thousands of years of other alternatives that were very top down or were very centralized, you know, it doesn't get any more centralized than a monarch. And you had tons of countries that had monarchs that obviously had a huge disparity. You want to talk about wealth disparity. I mean, huge disparity in, in income and wealth, right? Um, Even look at some of the socialist, um, you know, attempts throughout history. There's typically a small group of ruling class. This is the irony is you want to talk about, you know, big disparities in wealth distribution. Well, you're going to end up with an even bigger disparity in wealth distribution. You just end up with a ton more people who are poor and less people that have control of of money, right? Um, Like dramatically less. That's been the history of the world, Yeah. right? You know, it's, you have uh, royalty, you have landowners, there's very few of them. Mm -hmm. And everyone else is like literally dirt poor. They're serfs, they're slaves, they're peasants, like and and there was and there was no route for them to to get out and right. it it just makes me it makes me like want to crawl through a wall when I hear people talking about the economic disparity that exists today and how it's like the worst ever. It's like what are you talking about? Like yeah, it's not even close. It's not are even you, close. Are you joking? Like poor people in this country are obese. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what do we talk like poor people for, for the entire history of the world poor people died from malnutrition yeah. now they're dying from heart disease and diabetes like it's a different kind of problem and right. i and you know i i will tell you as well my you know i, I will um diverge a little bit from other libertarians you know i have a soft spot mm-hmm. I, do, I do feel bad for people mm-hmm. you know i am i'm extremely charitable the difference is this is a, a voluntary thing on my part. And like the things that I look for when I'm charitable, like I don't just give my money to anyone. Right. I give my money to organizations where I feel like the money's actually going to be good, put to good use. And that's, I think, an extension of my political philosophy. Um, I'm not against like tax increases or taxation at all. Yeah. But I'm always against tax proposals because you're just making another DMV, 
like whatever it is, a healthcare or whatever, you're just making another DMV. It's just like, no, I'm not interested yeah. in that. If you're going to take my tax money, spend it wisely. If you do that, I think we can avoid a lot of these problems, but just to spend money, just could, you know, to spend it, you know, like this whole defund the police nonsense. We're going to, we're going to send out camp counselors uh, to talk to them. And then we're going to live in some utopia. It's like what universe do you, do you live in where that could possibly happen? Like that, yeah. that's just so um, detached from the reality on the ground. And I think that's where libertarians really thrive is that there's, there's a connection to reality that exists. And I think the other political philosophies, there's a detachment for, uh, from, and, and that would be the liberal and the conservative yeah. philosophies on the other side. I feel like there's a detachment on the, on the liberal side. I feel like there's this, uh, just this uh, really infatuation of, you know, government's going to save us and they're going to protect us from the big boogeyman. But I think alternatively from the conservative philosophies on, you know, the other side, it's, you know, business, 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 like money, you know, it's like, they're both wrong. Yeah. Like it, 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 both of them are looking at like these big um, entities to sort of like rescue the rest of us. And it's like, I don't want to be rescued. Just get yeah. out of my way and get out of everybody else's way. That's all I ask. I, I find it really interesting that the, the um, both, both majority parties uh, major parties have uh, been been co-opted and set up in such a way now that it used to be the the Democrat Party legitimately used to speak to middle class and poor American um, uh, uh, it, it, at least used to speak to them. Okay, we can have a separate argument as to whether or not those those policy prescriptions were actually going to do or, or help those people, right? Um, but I think what's happened really within probably the last like 20, 30 years, like since Clinton, okay, the, you know, since, since uh, Bill Clinton, is that now both parties, it seems, are completely controlled by these top-down interests. And the grassroots organization, and I'll, I'll use these, you know, air quotes, grassroots organizations are not grassroots organizations that have the ear to the top of these parties. The grassroots organizations are these gigantic conglomerated nonprofits um, and advocacy groups that have tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. And even then, you're talking about an organization that is not speaking to the average American's needs, right? They're speaking to some higher level of whatever, influence, um, some higher level of politicking on their own part, right? Um, and, 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 and that very dynamic is, it's damaging because, you know what, I, it comes up time and time again. We don't have a problem between um, whites and blacks, or we don't have a, a problem between you know this group and this racial group. Okay, we have a problem between people that are authoritarian and people that want individuals to be able to be free and prosperous. That's the big dividing line right now. But it's been co-opted and sold that message yeah. like time and time again. And it's always like, you know, I, what's the story? When when socialist revolutions happen, okay, 
after the revolution happens, who are the first people to be executed and go? It's the it's what they call, and again, I don't use the phraseology, or I didn't come up with it, but the useful idiots, right? The people that caused all the disturbance and stuff to get the revolution to happen. Well, we don't want them around anymore because once they figure out they're getting screwed a second time, we don't want them causing a disturbance. So we got to get rid of them. So the people that are the loudest and the most violent and the most open about trying to get this, you know, seed change to happen typically they're the first ones to go on the on the tail end they've they've lived beyond their useful livelihood you know uh, and that just goes to t- show you what what that dynamic is like you know of course yeah so I, i'm a i'm a big fan of um world war Two mm-hmm. and mil- military history but specifically world war Two because it's just such a it was such a dark time in human history right and you know so it's I'm always amazed at how much sympathy the Soviets get. Mm. Like, just amazed. Like, it's always like the Nazis invaded Poland and they started World War II. And it's like just yesterday, um, I got a tweet from, I don't know if it was the History Channel or History Magazine. Like, on this day in in 1939, the Soviet Union invaded Poland. Mm -hmm. And it's just... um, I, 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 because of that kind of stuff, I've become more like, uh, I'm not a fascist. I'm anti-fascist, but I'm more anti-communist. And I, and the reason for that is that fascism is so obviously distasteful, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so obvious, right? Yeah. But communism is dressed up in, um, you know, it's lipstick on a pig. It's dressed up nicely. It's sold in a way. It's very, it's very alluring mm-hmm. to people because um, I, I sort of fell for it. I, I, would, I would probably classify my father as quasi-communist. Right. right? Like, so he, he kind of distilled that down to me. And so there's an alluring element of it of, you know, um, yeah, we're all in this together. And if you've, if you've done a little bit better, you should give a little bit more and all of that. And but not looking at like how that is sort of played out and it plays out exactly how you would expect it to play out with those incentives in place. And I I love the, I love what you just described of like, who do they get rid of? Yeah. Stalin, Stalin got rid of Trotsky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trotsky Trotsky was like booted out of the Soviet union. Stalin's like, yeah, that's still not good enough. He was in Mexico. He sent a a headhunter down there to assassinate him. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you for your service. But <laughs> yeah, that's basically that's it. always how it works. It, and I just so that's why like a, a lot of like when people see like my tweets or posts like, yeah, they generally I'm generally more like anti-communist because I feel like I don't have to be anti-fascist. Right. There's so many people doing that work for me. <laughs> but it's the communist part. It's like I want to I want to I want to take the allure off and just say, oh, my God, it's such a freaking disgusting philosophy it is all dressed up in these platitudes and it can't hold any water like it literally can't and has never and so uh you know debating people about like i love debating people about the nordic countries and how Mm. like oh they're democratic socialism and it's like they're more libertarian than you give them credit for first Mm. of all their economies are all free market yeah you know they have like you know but I think more, it's the culture of the people. The people have respect for one another. And so as much as they have like free healthcare and all this other stuff, it's like they chose that. Right? Wait, what, what also gets you know? discounted about the Nordic countries, and, and we're, we're kind of running up against time, so I don't want to keep you too long, 
um, but what gets um, kind of brushed under the rug is that the Nordic countries culturally are very homogeneous. Yes. Okay. When you're yes. dealing with a heterogeneous population, um, you know, homogeneity is it's, it's part of the reason why fascists always have this kind of undercurrent of socialism or, or maybe vice versa. But if you, if you notice, like there's almost always a purification thing that happens, always. right? Like we have yeah. to purify the, yeah. the people. And it's because if the, if you have a diverse group of people, there's going to be upstarts. There's people who are going to question. Yep. There's people that aren't going to yep. be helped. By can't the same can't have that. Exactly. And so can't have that. that's why that falls apart nine, you know, a hundred times out of a hundred, it falls apart unless you have an extremely homogeneous population. Well, um, I, I want to thank you very much. I appreciate it, Nick. Um, I, I could I'm, go all day. Yeah, I know. Right. Like hours. <laughs> if, if COVID wasn't happening, like we should go to the libertarian convention or whatever, because like, you know what? I love the debate and yep. it's like, I want my ideas tested. Because yes. I want them, I want them to be bulletproof. So having these kinds of conversations, it's like, yeah, br bring it on. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to bend my ideas. Libertarians get a really bad rap because when you get into a group with us, we fight with each other even harder than we fight with people outside of the group, and it's because we want that that litmus test of yeah. like you know what actually holds water. And you know what? There are some very defined kind of pillars of the libertarian um, party and movement. And then there's other things that we, we debate on a daily basis. Um, and that debate is important, right? First amendment, expression, yeah. diversity of thought, all of those things are important yep. within the party. And what's funny is how people in the major parties don't, don't have an appreciation for how beautiful that is. And they're, they're all about like, this is the party line. This is the direction we're going in. And we're like, all right, well have fun marching to your doom. We're going to be over here having a good time. So yeah, I want to, I want to thank you for taking the time out. I know you got a couple things to go do. I wanted to leave with, with one quote. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but this is a Teddy Roosevelt quote. Um, Nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort pain and difficulty. I have never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. I love Gorgeous. that Gorgeous. Yep. Awesome quote. So uh, enjoy the weather down there in Naples and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Okay. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you again for tuning in. This is a quick reminder to subscribe, like, share, and comment to help get the message of liberty and freedom in front of as many folks as possible. See you next time on Why Libertarian.